opening to our text. Matthew 5, we'll start reading at verse 43 and continue to the end of the fifth chapter of Matthew. And if you forgot your Bible or don't have a copy, you're always welcome to borrow one. There's a stack of them sitting right outside the door. Or we also will put the verses up on the screen. So the past six weeks in Christ's Sermon on the Mount have been profitable ones for my soul. And I hope for yours too. They focused on how Jesus perfectly explains the purpose and the intent of the law. And at the same time, he perfectly fulfills its intent. Jesus was what the law ultimately pointed to. And we saw that through different areas, different parts of the law. We talked about anger and lust, divorce, lying, retaliating when wronged. And how the response Jesus requires from his disciples is far from the normal human response. It's very different And rather than commanding a new legalism to us, Christ requires a deeper heart obedience from his disciples. And this last section continues that same trend. Today we consider the love that should come from kingdom disciples. So let's read together from Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's message for us today. May he he enable and bless our understanding of it and then our proper response. Let's pray to him together. God, I pray that you would empower this sacred, powerful, cutting text in our hearts. I pray that you would not just make us feel bad about the way that we don't love as we ought. But I pray that you would show us how we can love in a supernatural, in a different way, Lord, than Ordinary people tend to love. I pray that you would reshape our understanding, God, of what love is. Because I think many of us, myself included, came into the text this week and and thought, believed that love was just responding to good things that other people do to us, and we do that back, and Love, God, love is so much more than that. You give us in your son the perfect, the ultimate, the, the pinnacle view of what love is. May we see that more fully today, God. And may it change our response. May the gospel both inform and enable our love, God. 
We see in this text, God, that you call your disciples to a distinctive, a supernatural, a love that is liberally extended even to our enemies instead of the ordinary, natural, selfish love toward those who love us. Pray that you would show us more of your son today, that we would be empowered and encouraged to live in such a way this week, and that you would get much glory from it, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea today, just to put it on the table, we're going to talk about it then. The big idea from this text, I believe, is that Jesus calls his disciples to a distinctive, supernatural, liberally extended love, even to enemies, rather than an ordinary, natural, selfishly limited love to people who love us back. This love he both wonderfully demonstrates and powerfully enables in the gospel. If you tried to write that down, I apologize, I read it kind of fast, but I'll, I'll come back to it again later in the message too. Jesus is calling us to a different kind of love. When I was growing up, my dad would tell me something every time I left the house. Maybe this is universal. Maybe every dad does this and I just need to figure it out. But my dad would say this. He'd say, remember, you're a Tuttle. And now to me, you know, already had a big head as a kid. To me, that was like, my pride was like even bigger. Like, remember, you're a Tuttle. Like, oh, they must be something special. That's not what he meant, though. What he meant was... Rather than repeating a long list of rules of what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable while I was out, he wanted to remind me who I was because that should inform and change my behavior while I'm out of the house. So this wasn't his way of saying that we were better than anyone else, but in our home, the family name was expected to mean something. Remembering who I was was the foundation out of which a certain lifestyle a certain testimony should flow. And we've said something similar here at Grace and Truth before, and I I hope we never stop saying it. But we believe one of the key aspects of the Christian life, of our experience before Christ returns, is understanding who we are in Christ. That's our identity. And then increasingly living out that identity. So we think it's very important, it's hugely important for us as Christians to be reminded of our identity. Not primarily of who we were, but of who we are, how we are redeemed. That means purchased by the blood of Jesus from the slavery and the chains of sin. How we are forgiven by God, this is another part of our identity. How we are sons of God through adoption, and I could go on. In summary, our, our identity is key to the Christian life. And as I go through this message, I think it's going to be a simple message. I pray that it is. But it's going to have profound and inescapable implications that Jesus intended for us to respond to. I'm sticking with a fairly simple outline. I think you'll figure out the pattern fairly quickly. The outline is going to walk us through the text, basically section by section, just as I read it, and step through the different loves that Jesus describes. So if you have a bulletin, there's an outline there on the back cover, or you can just take notes if if that's something you like to do as you listen. 
So the first point is there is one critical error described in this text. In the blank on that line, one critical error describes unbiblical love. Unbiblical love. So we have the same pattern we've seen before in Matthew 5. You have heard, but I say to you. The first part is some incorrect teaching, some incorrect application of the law. Not that the law itself was wrong, but it had been corrupted. It had been twisted by the teachers. It didn't go as far as God intended to demonstrate the sinfulness of man's heart. Things that we saw before, like we can be murderers without actually killing, but by having hearts of anger. We can be adulterers without committing the physical act, but by lusting. So the error taught here is one single critical error. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Remember, this isn't the world teaching this. This, this is to be the people of God teaching codifying basically in their legal system in their in their belief of what God wanted them to do you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy it's one of those dangerous lies that slips in because it has the appearance of truth to it the first part you shall love your neighbor obviously that that's something we should do but the error is so pervasive it entirely corrupts the entire command because it separates all people into two different groups There's my neighbors and there's my enemies. I can have one response to one group, another response to the other. So if if I decide I don't want to love someone, just put them in the enemy group and then I'm free to hate them all I want. So let's look at the actual commands from the Old Testament law. I think that's going to be important. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. I want to hear what God really said in his law about who we're to love and who it's acceptable to hate. Leviticus 19, let's start in verse number 17. So this is the law that God gave to Moses. Leviticus 19:17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So from that passage, we're not to hate either our brother or our neighbor, those who are near to us. But we're to love them with a certain kind of love. He doesn't just say love your neighbor. He says love your neighbor as yourself, loving others with the same love that we naturally have for ourselves. The teaching that had happened in Christ's day left that important piece out as well. It twisted the meaning, though, to indicate that people who weren't our neighbors, weren't our brothers, were not to be loved. In fact, according to their legal wranglings, they could be hated. This included people like the foreigner or the Gentile. Anyone who was not like them, they were given permission to hate. Sadly, the same chapter of Leviticus, which they had missed, did talk about the response to strangers, ethnic Others, people are different from us, but they had widely missed this teaching. If you just look down the page, if you're in Leviticus 19, let's read in verse 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. 
for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So God had already taught in his Old Testament law the need for loving both neighbors and strangers. Really, the foundation for loving your enemies is right here in Leviticus. And there are other laws about how to treat the livestock of your enemy, the same as your brother's livestock. If they studied the Proverbs that Solomon wrote, they would have read this also. Proverbs 25:21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So you might ask, as, as I did, where could they possibly have gotten this far-fetched idea that it was acceptable to hate their enemy? I should clarify in even asking this question. They got it first from their sinful, self-justifying hearts, the same place we get those kind of ideas and our desire to justify sin. But where might they have gotten it? Maybe from God's teachings that hating their enemies was okay. Well, I don't want to spend much time on this, but perhaps they had taken and ran with some of the ideas, some of the commands of God in the Old Testament. So when Israel was coming into the promised land, they were commanded to destroy all the inhabitants of certain parts of the land. This wasn't a general command. This wasn't a principle for them to hate and destroy people they didn't like. But it was a specific command. Perhaps the teachers of the law had extended that a little bit to cover people they didn't like. Or you could also look at some of the imprecatory psalms. These are psalms where a prayer is made to God to destroy the enemies of God. Notice I said that very carefully. A prayer is made to God to destroy his enemies, not our enemies. We don't pray God Get rid of the teacher that I don't like. They gave me a bad grade. No, the prayer, and obviously I don't have time to fully teach on imprecatory prayers. It's a, a challenging topic, but the prayer was directed for God to do what God does. Be just, be holy, judge sin. And you can see even in the book of Revelation, in Revelation, the, the people pray, Revelation 19 especially. They pray and they praise God when the smoke is rising up from the destruction of the wicked. I don't think we pray for the destruction of the wicked, but we pray for God's plan of redemption to be accomplished. So I really don't know where they got this idea. There's obviously a few places they could have, but they were dead wrong. This, this was a fatal flaw to their understanding of what love is. But in starting to read through and think about it a little bit, I started to wonder, and I want to ask us all to consider this question. If they had built up this, this legal system where it was okay to hate their enemies, do we somehow also feel justified in hating people who aren't like us? People who, maybe we wouldn't use the word enemy. Enemy is such a strong word, so maybe we'd use a word like, we just don't get along that well. Um, they just don't see things the same way as I do. So who is an enemy to us, to us 21st century American Christians? Who is your enemy? 
I probably know now much more about enemies than I ever wanted to. Because the truth about who my enemies are reveals the ugly corners of my heart that I'd rather not talk about, rather not think about. But I know we need to talk about it to obey Jesus. So there are several ways we can define our enemies. Here's just a few. An enemy is an unfriendly opponent. That's kind of a dictionary-like definition. Another dictionary says, a person who is actively opposed to someone else. So if you're looking for kind of a, a blanket covering statement of what an enemy is, someone who's actively opposed to you might be your enemy. Does anyone actually have like an arch enemy? Like superheroes kind of have arch enemies like he is my enemy till death. I don't think we, we don't we don't use those kind of terms anymore. But an enemy could just be anyone who wants to hurt you, someone who dislikes you. An enemy could be anyone on the opposing side of an issue. I think this is one where we probably should start to feel a little bit sensitive. We may consider an enemy someone who politically thinks differently than we do, someone who votes in the other primary, someone whose values are different than ours, someone whose theology is different from ours. And I could go on, obviously. Someone on the opposing side of an issue. An enemy could be someone who is just different from me. Someone who is wired differently. Someone who responds to stress differently. Someone who orders their life by a different set of values. Their way of doing things is foreign. Therefore, I don't understand them. Therefore, I don't like them. That's often the way our logic works. An enemy can be anyone we don't think is worthy of our love. Anyone come to mind as those different examples of enemies were read? Maybe it even wasn't a specific person, but sometimes an enemy can be like a nebulous class of people that we don't know anybody that fits in that class, but we think, if I knew someone, I wouldn't like them. Maybe for you, it's the person you've tried to rationalize your lack of love for them. You've tried to excuse it away, like, We're just too different. That's why I don't love them. The person you're thinking of right now is probably your enemy. And Jesus is going to be calling you today not to do the natural thing, which had been taught then, that it was okay to hate them. But he's going to encourage and command you to respond supernaturally to love them. So the second point is two oxymoronic commands. That's the adjective form of oxymoron. Oxymoronic commands. And these describe Christian love. Instead of a love or hate relationship, being able to choose who do I love, who do I hate, that was incorrectly taught back then. Jesus taught a love for hate relationship. And he does it in two commands. These, these stand like, like oxymorons, like paradoxes. And they're clearly stated in verse 44 of our text. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let's read them again. Seek to understand and apply. First of all, love your enemies. This contradicts everything we naturally feel for our enemies. 
There's a reason they're your enemy after all. This is a seeming contradiction because it contradicts. It's there are enemies. Love doesn't fit for our enemies. We're supposed to hate our enemies, right? This love requires choosing to do something contrary to how we feel. Acting positively toward that person as a result of that choice. Let me repeat that. This love requires choosing to do something contrary to our feelings, perhaps, and then acting in positive ways toward that person as a result of the choice. And what that often means, then, is trusting in God to change our heart toward that person. Trusting in God to change our heart. Because of the selfish, me-centered bent of my heart, and I believe probably your heart as well, we struggle to love those even those that we do care about, even those that we do love, we struggle to love them in a way that puts them first. I've been doing a marriage study for the past couple of months and reminded every time we talk about these things, I should be reminded more, but every time we talk about them, I'm reminded how selfish I am toward my spouse, toward Lorena. And this is someone I love. If we're selfish toward someone we love, How selfish must we be toward people that are our enemies? So we'll talk in a few minutes about what this love might look like, what it might look like to love our enemies, because it really doesn't necessarily mean becoming best friends with them, picking them to go on family vacations with you, things like that. But we are to love them. There is no room for hate in Christ's kingdom. There's no room for hate in Christ's kingdom. Our natural response to hate must be replaced by Christ's love. Then the second command that fills out what Christian love looks like is to pray for your persecutors. And here we start to get towards some of the practical expressions of what love toward our enemies might look like. When Matthew wrote this letter, the church was under some serious persecution for their faith. We talked about Christian persecution several couple months back as we went through the Beatitudes. But in that culture, the persecutor of the faith was an obvious enemy. So as soon as as soon as they would have read Christ's teaching about loving your enemy, that probably would have been the first person that popped in their head. Well, the guy that persecutes us, the guy that threw our, our pastor in prison last week, the guy that is doing these things against our proclamation of the gospel, the good news. So in that culture, they would have identified the persecutor as an enemy. And they weren't merely to put up with the persecution. They weren't to stand up for their faith, but maybe dislike the person who's doing these things. The command of Christ to his disciples was to pray for the persecutor. Pray for the one who hates you and wants to take your life. The one trying to destroy their faith, put them in prison, condemn them to death, or possibly even wielding the tool of execution. Yes, pray for that person. So you see just how far Christ intended to go when he's talking about loving your enemies. The very person that may want to put you to death is worthy of your love in God's kingdom. 
And there's a key relationship here I believe we should see between love and prayer. Love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. Sometimes God may use this praying for our enemies as a way to start growing love for them in our hearts. Pray for them when you don't love them. Ask that God would bless them. These are the kind of prayers that are very hard to pray. Pray that God would be gracious to them in the gospel and draw them to Jesus. if They don't know him. Pray that they might not receive the judgment that we all deserve for our sin. Think about some ways you too should be praying for your enemies. Add them to your prayer list. What enemies do I need to be praying for today? I believe that God would begin to change your heart, change your perspective toward them as you bring them by name before the throne of grace. This isn't the only time Jesus taught on this topic of loving others. We could almost say it's a theme of his throughout much of his earthly ministry, talking about love. Remember when people tried challenging him about what the greatest commandment was, and his response was, love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. So this was a large part of what he taught his followers and others who came to him and asked about eternal life. Love for others was a key indicator separating false external religion like the Pharisees had from true internal relationship with God that resulted in heart change. And perhaps one of the best known stories he told was, I think we all know it, the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. That's another message entirely, not time to go into it now, but maybe for your own personal study. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, Christ in a parable form, went to what love was to look like. And that, I'm not sure if you remember, but it was precipitated. The story was brought about because a lawyer was asking him, who is my neighbor? Trying to catch Christ to get him to make a mistake in his response. And he basically showed through that parable Your neighbor includes your enemy. Your neighbor includes the one you do not want to love. So this had been a consistent teaching and would be a consistent teaching of Christ. That every person we interact with is part of our neighbor, even our enemy. Even in that day, the hated mixed breeds that were the Samaritans. But even they were worthy of our love and should be treated with care, with mercy, with respect, even going out of our way to help them. So we've looked at one critical error and two oxymoronic commands. Now let's look at three massive truths. Three massive truths about the Father's love. Twice in this small section of verses, Jesus points us to God the Father, both his Father and our Father as disciples, And watch as he starts doing this more in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see it more in chapter 6. I think it may even come up some in chapter 7 of Matthew. But here he does it. Here he points us to the Father to show us really big truths about God's love. 
that should inform our response to such difficult commands. The first massive truth is that the Father blesses and provides for all people through his common grace. The Father blesses and provides for all people by his common grace. Another word that could be used is to describe this as indiscriminate love. Maybe that word has strange connotations for you, but it's basically without discriminating. To love without choosing. Is this someone I want to love or not? Is this someone that has earned my love, deserves it or not? No, this is the father's love is indiscriminate. God sends his son and brings the rain. And both of these are symbols and means of provision, especially in that day, a farm based society. If you got rain and you got sun. I think those are two parts of photosynthesis. It's been a while since I've been in that science class, but. God generally provides these two things equally to both the evil and the good. Both of them get sun. On a day like today, people in Oregon are getting sun. Whether they're considered good people or bad people, God is blessing all equally with his son. And the same thing with rain. We've had a wet, wet winter, spring, maybe even part of the summer seemed pretty wet. Wait, is it summer yet? No, probably not. Okay. So it, it seemed like a wet season last couple of seasons. That is God's blessing. That is God's means of provision. And he provides that indiscriminately to the just and to the unjust, to the good and the evil. And I use the term common grace. What is common grace? It's not grace that is commonplace or something we can dismiss. No, it is grace that God liberally applies to all people, regardless of their response to him. I guess you could say this started back in the garden after God created. After he saw the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman was very good. And he began to bestow blessings on them. The blessings of food and water, of relationship. And even after Adam and Eve sinned and all mankind fell, even after further judgment towards sin through the flood, God promised in Genesis 8, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. I'm going to continue providing you seasons. I'm going to continue providing you everything you need to sustain life. So God continued extending grace to humanity, even though they were in defiance against him. He sent water on the earth. The earth and the sun danced through the the space, continuing the cycle of day and night, this change of seasons. These are parts of God's common grace that we all benefit from. Does this mean God loves everyone equally, therefore all will be saved? No, that would be universalism. And while we don't fully understand God's sovereign choice, Scripture is clear that not all will be saved, that there is a literal hell that will contain those who do not accept God's plan of redemption through Jesus alone. So though we all deserve judgment, God has set his love, a special love, 
on some for salvation. So the Father blesses and provides for all people in a common grace way. Second point, second massive truth about the Father's love. Your sonship is demonstrated, not earned, demonstrated when you love like your father does. Just like a child growing up might resemble their parents in the way they talk and their mannerisms. We might see family similarities and start pointing those out. I think we talked about some of these things earlier in chapter 5. Maybe you say, he's a chip off the old block, or she got her looks from her mom. These are ways we communicate a parent to child similarity. Things that might be inherited, like hair color. Or pass on through nearness of relationship. But you can tell usually whose child Whose, yeah, whose child someone is just by that nearness, by that relationship. And in a similar and probably far greater way, we are to increasingly act like our father in the way we live and from this text in the way we love. The Apostle John in 1 John 4, 8 said, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So through our relationship with our Father, who is love, through the nearness of that fellowship with Him, we should get a true picture of what love is. And our lives should start to display, to demonstrate that same kind of love, even toward our enemies. The third massive truth, greater resemblance to our Father's love, is to be pursued by true sons is to be pursued by true sons. This resemblance that we have naturally because of who our Father is, I believe it's also something we need to actively be pursuing. Why does it say in this verse, we're in verse 45, my translation starts with, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Is that saying that the way we become sons is by loving our enemies? No. This is not something that can be earned. Sonship is something that's bestowed on us by a loving God. So D.A. Carson said about this, why does it say so that? His answer, the point of the passage isn't to state the means of becoming sons, but the necessity of pursuing a certain kind of sonship. The necessity of pursuing a certain kind of sonship that's patterned after the father's character. In other words, sonship is something we already have completely. You don't become more of a son of your parents. It's not like you work really hard and now I'm a second degree son. Got to work a little harder before I get a first. No, you're either a son or you're not. But it's something we actively pursue to be more visible in our lives. That people look at you and say, There is something different about that woman. She must be a son of God because of the way he loves I can see in her life or I can see in his life. So we've talked, I think, maybe a little bit too abstractly thus far about the father's love. We've talked about his common grace love, how he sends the rain, how he sends the sun. But I want us to get an accurate picture of the extent of God's love. 
both that liberal love that he extends to all, but also his sovereign love to the redeemed. I want us to feel that love today. So let's start by remembering what he has done for us. I think in understanding and reminding ourselves constantly of the gospel, of what God has done for us, we will get a better grasp of our Father's love. John describes it quite clearly in 1 John 4, starting in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Don't get your definition of love from what we have done, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. So let's, let's dwell on that for a minute. Let's soak in the love of the Father that sent his Son to be a sacrifice for the least deserving, for the ones who deserve death. God sent his Son to be that propitiatory sacrifice. My rebellion and your rebellion, apart from Christ, was deep. And it wasn't just some abstract thing. It was a heart directed against a holy God. That's what we have in us apart from Christ. And we sometimes, I think, trivialize just how deeply seated that rebellion was. We might look at it kind of like a cute three-year-old level rebellion. Like that actually exists. There is no such thing. No rebellion is cute. But this is all out. Our hearts, apart from Christ, are all out adult rebellion. This is like hardened criminal heart, God-hating. And before a holy God, it sometimes helps me to get a picture in my head, and I think this is one you've maybe heard before, but before a holy God, who is our judge, our cosmic eternal judge, we were dragged in to a courtroom, guilty, already guilty, but spitting out curses at our judge. Now, this judge wasn't some, you know, fresh out of law school. This judge had a perfect track record. Only just decisions, no false convictions, no mistakes. So we knew as soon as we walked into that courtroom what we deserved. But we still exercised our defiance, our enmity at this law that we did not want to obey. So the conviction was no surprise. We were guilty as lawbreakers on every count. All that was left was the sentencing. But these were capital crimes. The death penalty was a foregone conclusion. We deserved death. But in a miraculous, in a heart-rending, in a joyful turn, the judge and the opposing counsel had another plan. This had been in play long before you were born. There was a substitute. 
the judge's own firstborn who had done nothing wrong was going to take your place and go to death row for you. That meant he would take the lethal injection, the electric chair, the hangman's noose, the Roman cross for you. And dying, he would be raised from the dead to sit beside his father and represent you in any future case that might be raised against you. No old sins could be brought up that you would have to go back to trial. You were represented. And he would gradually and lovingly change you by his grace to be more like himself. His, this father, this judge in the, in the imperfect picture I'm using, his was a perfect love for us. So now we have four rhetorical questions. And this points us to the fact that this is a distinctive love. I'm going to go through these questions quickly. If you love those who love you, we're in verse 46, what reward do you have? And it's rhetorical because the, the obvious answer is none. If, if you just love others who already love you back, there is no reward. If, th- there's nothing noteworthy about that. There's no one handing out awards for this kind of love. Because if there were, everyone would be getting one. This, this love is common. And while the reward here isn't the point, it's being used here to show that it's not a special person worthy of recognition who loves when they're loved back. The second rhetorical question, do not even the tax collectors do the same? The rhetorical answer that we don't have to give is yes. This is an example of a class of people who love people who love them back. And Jesus very carefully picks a group of people that no one liked, the tax collector. In fact, if you were to try to find people who like tax collectors, you'd maybe find two people, their mom and another tax collector, because no one liked tax collectors. They were like corrupt IRS employees that work for Al-Qaeda. I mean, seriously, that's like just putting it right here. The occupation in that day was about as low as you could go in society structure, You had sold yourself basically to work for the occupying Roman government to collect taxes from your own people. So it was traitorous. And then you usually stole a little bit for yourself. So you were unscrupulous. You were a traitor. You had pretty much sold yourself. This was not a person you typically like. So God or Jesus used them as the example of someone. Even those people love those who love them, love people who love them back. By implication, Jesus' disciples should and must have a distinctive, a different kind of love than that. The next two questions basically repeat the same pattern. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? No more. If you greet only people who like you, who greet you back, who are friendly to you, who are friends, who are brothers, this is something everyone does, people you're close to. The greetings of those days were more than a simple hello or a tight-lipped smile and nod as you walk by someone in the hallway. These were a blessing. When they would greet someone, it was usually with a blessing like shalom, brother. You were blessing that person. These would be regularly spoken to friends, to family in the Jewish community. 
But if you do that only to friends and family, there's nothing distinctive about that love. It's common. Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So here again, he's stepping out to a people they would not have liked. This would have been a troubling comparison for a Jewish audience. Don't even Gentiles greet people who greet them back? Greet people who are their brothers? Being compared to the unclean dogs of their society was devastating to their view of themselves. They thought they were different and superior people. And now they're being knocked down a notch. You're just the same as Gentiles. In the people we choose to love, there may not be much difference between us and the surrounding world. And I think that should, that should alarm us. That we're probably not much different than the world around us in the people we choose to love. Because sons of God, but brothers and sisters, sons of God by his grace need to be different. So what differentiates your love from others? Ask yourself, based on these four questions, Jesus wanted his followers to evaluate what differentiates your love from others. Look at what is different about your love than the non-believing world around you. Who do you show love to that doesn't already love you back? Or to turn it around, are there people you conveniently avoid seeing so you don't have to greet them? What's the name of the person you wouldn't say hi to if you saw them today? This is the person God calls you to love, and it won't happen naturally. Only God can work that in a supernatural love in your heart. And sometimes I think we, we read this, we see it, and we say, well, what if they don't love me back? I'm just going to give to them. I'm just going to love them and they're going to keep hating me. Well, God doesn't promise a certain response when we start loving our enemies. He doesn't say that our enemies are going to receive it and become our best friends. But that shouldn't influence whether or not we love. I can't help but wonder how much our lives would change. How much my life would change if I started actually living this way. How many more opportunities I might have to share God's love with others if I loved people who were different from me just because God told me to? What do you think? How much of your motivation to share the gospel with someone else is rooted in how much you love them? How much of your decision to sit down and take time, move toward relationship with someone, is rooted in how much you love them or really care about them. If you started praying for and loving your enemies, do you think you might try to bring the amazing news of the gospel to them with greater urgency? You actually cared for their soul? So in conclusion, rather than continue the pattern of the outline and talk about five something, something, It didn't work. So I decided the entire verse was really needed. This last verse of Matthew 5 was really needed to communicate Jesus' message fully because he closes the chapter with 11 grace-filled words. And this describes supernatural love. 11 grace-filled words. Let's read that closing verse again. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are grace-filled words. 
from our Savior. And immediately you're probably thinking, how, Josh, are these grace-filled? It's telling me I need to be perfect. I know I'm not perfect. So that seems more like a really high bar that all of us are going to miss. Maybe you're hearing these as anything but grace. But really, this again goes back to the cross. Jesus' blood speaks more persuasively, more powerfully about the nature of true love than anything else, anything in the so-called love of all of human history. Because his love was directed toward those who were his enemies. It was demonstrated by a bloody sacrifice on a forsaken cross. So rather than talk about theoretical love and learning about love in the abstract, how much better to experience the love of God through the gospel. This is a reality to who we are in Christ. We've experienced an overwhelming grace, an amazing love that we didn't and don't deserve. And in our experience of that love, we have both an example to follow and an indwelling spirit to enable our own love. So this, again, is a supernatural love. So when we read that we must be perfect, we know we're not up to that task on our own. This last verse isn't talking about sinless perfection in this life, but it's talking about the fact that we are to become more like our Father, and we will become more like our Father. Do you see that? It's both a command and a promise. You, therefore, must be perfect isn't putting the burden on us. It's saying you, therefore, must be perfect And as my disciple, I will make you that. One author says, like Jesus, his followers are to show benevolence to their enemies in order to reflect God's benevolence that he shows to evil people. Thus, they are to be complete or perfect, as is their father. Another way to say this, they are to aspire toward the end time, the ultimate goal of the law, which the father already perfectly reflects. So as Jesus summarizes in this verse, everything that doesn't belong in his kingdom, anger, lust, lying, all the things we've talked about in this chapter, we know he will accomplish his work and his disciples to the end. And only by Jesus are we empowered to keep this law from our hearts and to love liberally like our Father. Three practical heart questions I'm sorry if you're writing down a lot. I know we had something like 10 subpoints there. Three questions to consider as you go. Talk about in your community group, perhaps. Who is it that's my enemy? Second question. Why are they my enemy? Is it because they don't love me back? Is it because I feel like they don't deserve my love? Third question. How can I love them this week? Who is it that's my enemy? Why are they my enemy? And if we're obeying Christ's teaching in this passage, how can I love them this week? Don't put it off. Start by praying for them. Maybe not big, elaborate prayers on their behalf, but add them to your prayer list. Pray for their needs. Maybe if it's a class of people you think you kind of categorized as your enemy, someone who thinks differently than you, start by doing something to bless those people or people like that. 
and be like your God that sends sun and rain to all people. So we've seen today that Jesus calls his disciples to a distinctive, supernatural, liberally extended love, even to enemies, rather than an ordinary, natural, selfishly limited love to people who love us back. This love he both wonderfully demonstrates and powerfully enables in the gospel. Let's pray that God increase our love as his disciples. God, we need you to do a supernatural work in us. To those in our midst who this message may have been foreign, I pray that you would do that initial work of regeneration, that you would give new life in hearts because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Pray that you would draw to yourself, Lord, by your Spirit, those who need a Savior. And to those of us who have already fled to Jesus and are still fleeing to Jesus, I pray that you would change our love. My love, God, you revealed this week, is is very selfish, is very self-oriented to what I can get back. What is the best investment for my love? And you have shattered that by the teaching of your son when he said to love and to pray for my enemies. I pray that you would enable my response, that you would enable our response, that we would identify enemies that we are not loving, that we are sinfully hating, and that you would empower us to love them because of the gospel. Do this for your eternal glory, Father. In the name of your perfect Son, Jesus. Amen.